Welcome to the Investing for Life podcast, where we apply proven investment principles to the lives of successful business people to help you enrich your own. With your host, Douglas Isles. I'm delighted today to be joined by Andrew Denton. Andrew is a writer and broadcaster who's worked in every medium except crayon. He lists Rupert Murdoch, Paul Keating, and Jeremy and Greer as his favorite detractors. Andrew is also the founding director of Go Gentle Australia, a national advocacy organization aimed at offering people compassionate end-of-life choices. After listening to the episode today, if you want to learn more about Go Gentle Australia or make a donation, please visit their website at gogentleaustralia.org.au. So Andrew, thank you very much for joining me. Douglas, a pleasure. I feel a little bit like um, bowling to Shane Warne or, or serving to, to Roger Federer, but in your experience interviewing hundreds of people, what importance did you place on the first question? It depended who the person was and what the circumstances were. So if the person was a really uh, experienced, seasoned interview guest, um, usually you try and have something that was just fun. I mean, the first question is often a softball question because you're going to edit as well. So you want everyone get, to get the space. But if it's a very tense and contested interview, so I remember interviewing Mark Latham, who had controversially uh, stepped aside as leader of the opposition, and it was the first interview he'd done after silence, and there was this huge heat about it. And I knew we were going to get to very difficult stuff, So I, and he'd been unwell with pancreatitis. So my first questions were basically, well, how are you? Um, so generally, you try and make it uh, a, a comfortable way in for people. I watched you interviewing Michael Parkinson, who was – one of the other uh, people held in very high esteem in, in your field. And it was uh, it was entertaining to watch the opening to that interview. You kind of eyeballed each other, yeah. and smiled and laughed, and, and that in itself was, was great television. Well, look, I remember being uh, a bit nervous myself before that interview because I, I hold Parky in high esteem. And as I got to know him, he said, he's got that thing you can't buy. He's just genuinely charming. But what made it more nerve-wracking was over his shoulder – uh, looking at me with steely eyes was his wife Mary, who's definitely the the punisher in the family, <laughs> and uh, and I was going to go into some not uh, problematic territory, but maybe some slightly difficult territory. Had that being said, I think Parky was the kind of guest Parky will kill to have on his own show. He was just everything, um, candid and great stories and delightful. Would Would you have liked to be a guest on your own show? Oh, God, no. 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 Um, not only did I not like the interviewer. Um, <laughs> no, not really. Um, I actually thought a lot of the questions asked, people were hard questions to answer. They were supposed to be, not hard as in gotcha, but uh, emotionally hard, and I'm not sure I would have wanted to answer those. Having said that, I always felt that in every interview, it was not my job to be the lion in the Colosseum. We were we were two people in the Colosseum and the audience were the lions. And so I had to leave myself open to uh, exposure, yeah. either with my reactions or with my questions or sometimes when things were put back to me. So, I, And that was very important. I wanted the guests to feel always that we were both in this together, not that they were – with a couple of exceptions, there were a few criminals who I felt a bit differently about, yeah, but right. uh, yeah. not that they were um, somehow – just in the spotlight on their own. Yeah. So today, I mean, you, you touched on the the emotional aspect of the conversation. I think, you know, my, my series, Investing for Life, is partly about dealing with setbacks. And um, 
Today, I think we're going to touch on a, a very difficult topic and I guess the ultimate setback, which is death. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, I love that way of putting it, the ultimate setback. <laughs> the ultimate setback yes. and maybe, maybe yes. how we can- unless, you're, unless you believe in God, in which case it's a promotion. <laughs> there you go. Okay. So for many of the audience, yes. the, the ultimate setback. And the emotional element, um, you know, as I, as I look at your sort of journey was that your relationship with death changed very much with the with the death of your if your own father could we could we start there uh sure uh only um uh once prior to that had i experienced someone dying and that was that was a, a young man with cancer and his parents asked me offered me invited me to go and visit him as he was dying and i that was the first time i saw death at work and i and that was very shocking but obviously your own father um, we were in our local hospital who did their best. Um, and I've discovered this many times since talking not just to people whose loved ones have died, but to doctors. You're very disempowered in a hospital system. So their best was not good enough. The last three days of my father were painful, and they were painful to watch, obviously painful for him to go through. But you just assume, well, this is how it goes, and um, this is the this is the natural process. I found out since it should have been handled much better. Um, but those last, though, particularly those last moments, it's it is uh, profoundly shocking to watch your parent die, and particularly a powerful figure as my father was. Yeah. And um, you know, I remember uh, this kind of this weird, uh, almost rhyme popped into my head. Death takes you, shakes you, breaks you, and unmakes you, and um, and that's what I saw with my father. And uh, watching those last moments, uh, it's, it's hard to think of anything more deeply burnt into my psyche than that. Were you very close prior to that? Was it? Um, yeah, we were a close, close relationship. We were a close family, but it was not always a um, you know father sons son relationships can be difficult and and uh, it was not always um, we weren't always on the same page <laughs> is probably the best way to put it. And my father could be uh, he could be angry and he could be um, uh, yeah problematic. So I had a lot. We were close in many many ways. I had a lot of admiration, respect for him in many ways. But there are other issues on which we diverged. I, I, I noticed that you know, doing research on yourself, there's a, there's a lot about that that moment. There's not so much about your mum. I mm -hmm. can learn she's a a small Irish lady. Um, <laughs> she was, and she was she was buried too, or, or her coffin was carried to the the French national anthem. Yes, that piqued my interest. Um, <laughs> is there a story? What can, what can you share about your mum? Oh, thank you for asking. Uh, because usually the conversations about my dad, my mum was. Um, she came from Irish Catholic stock. In fact, one of her aunts was an actual uh, sister of mercy. Who I remember coming to dinner when I was about seven, and she had the full habit and the wow. and I was I was uh, and the rosary beads. I was transfixed. <laughs> um, uh, and Mum described herself as mad Irish, and she did have a very uh, lateral way of thinking. I remember I rang her up once, and she said, "Oh, I've been worried about you." I said, "Oh." Well, if you're worried, I'm fine. If you're worried, why didn't you call? She said, oh, I was afraid I'd find out. <laughs> that was very mum. Um, and she was, she was tiny. She was a tiny human being. Um, she worked uh, – I'll give you – this will give you a sense of my parents' relationship. My father was a writer, a very, uh, very verbal man. My mother was very funny in her own way too. And their, their marriage, like many, it – 
it wandered in and out of frequency. Yeah. And um, uh, my mum went as an estate agent. So dad was a freelance writer, and which was it was not an easy way to make a living. And uh, there was a time he had to go and wash dishes to bring money into the family home. So mum went and got the full-time job as an estate agent. And the people in the little town where I grew up, Wentworth Falls, which is a very little village at that time, this was a mysterious arrangement. So somebody uh, in mum's estate agent office said to her one day, oh, Mrs. D, it must be very tough for you. You know, you're in here working every day and your husband's at home drinking. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And mum went home and, and laughed and told dad. And the next day, mum's sitting in the estate agent. She was actually in the, kind of in the front window. That's where her desk was. And suddenly there's this hammering at the glass and she looks up and there's dad who's shouting loud enough for the street to hear, <laughs> woman, you haven't given me my gin money yet. <laughs> um, so that, so, so to, why did mum want the Marseillaise? Um, it, this is what I love about mum. I have no idea why she did. It was a complete surprise to us. To ha it was difficult to think of a bigger anthem for a smaller woman, but but this is the mark of her. So she'd been raised Catholic and uh, that ebbed and disappeared over her life. Um, and as she was dying, um, we were different of us keeping vigil at different times and I was with her alone one night and I said, mum, do you want me to get you a priest? And she thought about it for a moment and said, no, I'm not that much of a hypocrite, which I thought was a very courageous and uh, true thing for her to say. And she died more peacefully than your father? Yeah, did. she died of, uh, of as peaceful a death as you can. And um, you know, I can still hear the rain on the roof. And it was, you know, I've seen both kinds of death. You, when, you, when you stopped Enough Rope, you said something um, about guests faking it and, and that the show had turned into a little bit of a confessional. In some way, I think, um, or or an opportunity for people to confess. Um, was that you know? I guess going back to your Catholic descendancy or something, did that um, sit obviously sat poorly with you? Well, nothing to do with um, my Catholic background. I was baptized Catholic and uh, went to Catholic schools and so on. But um, look, it happened a few times in the last year where it was clear guests who are local guests. Yeah. They had, there are a couple of them who came came and performed, as it were, as enough rope guests. And it was clear to me that um, they were sort of acting out what they felt the role of the guest was. And it was noticeable that the best guests were the ones from overseas who, who it, it was still a new experience for them. So, um, uh, just, I'm fairly restless professionally anyway, but it was just, very clear to me, even though the show was still uh, well regarded and getting good audiences, that uh, it was it was time to move on. As um, what what was that thing that um, uh, Bob Hawke said to Bill Hayden when uh, it was it, it was he was going to take over as leader of the Labour Party? He said, uh, "Cobber, the the dogs are pissing on your swag. It's time to go. It's time to go." <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, my wife actually said it's the only about the only program she watched in in that sort of. Period right. of time. So when did you come to Australia? I, I came in all two. Okay. So I think I was around, we started that, just around after that time that, as well. Yeah, yeah. I think it was all three to all yeah, eight um, that's from right. memory. So it was a decade after that before you, um, I think the words were, lit the fire at the uh, National Press Club 2016, mm -hmm. launching Go Gentle. Yes. Maybe we could sort of jump to there and, sure. and, and what, what you remember from that sort of uh, debut, if you like, bringing uh, it to life. Well, I mean, I've been working... Uh, so that was 2000 and 
16, 16 yeah. And so I've been working for about a year and a half before that. Uh, I did. I had no intention of this um, so taking over my life. Right. Um, but uh, I had been asked to give a speech at a place in Melbourne called the Wheeler Centre uh, by a friend of mine. Um, they do a th- They were doing a th- an annual thing called the Diagribble Argument, named after a well-known publisher who right. um, passed away. And the point of this argument was to pre- present uh, a speech about something that was difficult and controversial. So I said, look, I, and I hadn't really given it a lot of thought. I just said, I'll do that and I'll do it on euthanasia. Right. And I guess it's because I always keep files on things I think are interesting. And this, and I touched on it at different points in my career, but only peripherally. Right. And it's such an amazing confluence of all the big issues. Yeah. You've you got death, you've got religion. You've got medicine, you've got ethics, yeah. you've got morality, yeah. uh, you've got everything. All flow into this one argument and politics, of course. Anyway, um, so I was. I decided, well, if I'm going to do this speech, I'm not going to turn up as celebrity with opinion. I'm going to go and do serious research. And I had cleared professional space for myself. So I, I decided I'm going to go to the countries where this exists. Because right. all we ever hear in Australia is it's terrible. It's, ter- it's killing pe- old people and disabled people and, oh, it's terrible. I thought, I never hear from those people. So, um, and I was very, very lucky. Just when I was setting off in this course, uh, for the first and only time ever, an international anti-euthanasia convention was held in Adelaide. And I asked if I could go and they said, yep. And so I spent two days there. Right. And it was like this masterclass in all the things, all the arguments against, most of which were fairly new to me, and some of which were very alarming, and I took very careful notes. But it was like it gave me this roadmap. It's like, well, there are all the problems, apparently. Let's go and see if they're true. Anyway, to cut a long story short, uh, almost none of them are true. Um, and all that work I turned into a podcast, and uh, in travelling around Australia in particular, what I saw was... Uh, a really significant and I felt scandalous problem, which were there were people dying uh, really badly and far worse than my father had and terrible stories of suicides. And and that was on one side. And these were very disempowered people. And on the other side, you had very powerful institutions. You had uh, the Catholic Church, obviously. You had the medical profession that the Catholic Church uh, funded. So many senior doctors um, you had most of the peak medical bodies all going, leave it with us. It's not a problem. We've got this under control. And to me, the scandal was it was clear that there was a problem happening and Australian politicians were effectively being gaslighted and told, no, nah, it's, it's all right. It's good. That's, uh, that's somewhat ironic. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, indeed. So um, by the time I got to the press club, I was I was pretty angry, yeah. and um, because I saw a huge injustice happening, and I had spent time with uh, people as they were dying, and I'd seen what it was like to go through a terrible death when the medical profession couldn't help, and one particularly beautiful man who ended up taking his own life, multiple sclerosis. So when I got to the press club, God, I was nervous because it felt it, it felt big, and. Um, and because it's such a contested subject, yes. and I had I become very familiar with the 
the thousands of ways in which opponents they there's a I don't know if you've ever heard of a, a tactic called the gish gallop. It's used in politics in particular, um, and what it is is you if you're in a, an argument with someone. Rather than contesting the heart of their argument, you throw up as many counter arguments as possible. It doesn't matter yep. the credibility of them. It's just the sheer number of them makes it difficult to keep for, for the other side to keep a through line. So I was aware that this was the strategy that opponents of euthanasia. Yeah. Yeah. And there was always, I could probably name you 50 of them. Yes. Uh, which they always end up with Nazis, by the way. Right. Um, they, but so when I got to the press club, it was very, very nerve wracking. I put a huge amount of work into it and, um, uh, I got through it okay. But I remember the next couple of days I was just drained. Right. Yeah. So it's a emotional. And intellectual. Subject, but emotion, the energy you have to put yeah. in to, to fight that. So. Yeah. Plus, so, I knew I was taking on, uh, and by the way, I wasn't alone, but yeah. I, I decided to, I was probably the most prominent person at that point making that yes. argument. I knew I was taking on really uh, powerful enemies. Yes. So I think it's Sun, Sun Tzu, uh, The Art of War, Know Your Enemy is a, is yeah. a starting point. So yes. you've done, that was a Indeed. fortunate position. Yeah. But it struck me, sort of reading about this, that... Um, some way parallel to the sort of gay marriage debate where it didn't seem to be any logical reason to oppose it. Mm. The vast majority of the country appeared to yes. be on side, yet it became this huge battle. Yeah. So is that, is that the fair analogy? Yeah, I think it's a pretty fair analogy. I think um, there's a couple of differences which are significant. One is that uh, gay marriage affects uh, and will affect a certain percentage of the population, whereas yes. death affects 100% of the population. Yep. So it's an issue in which we are all invested. Yes. It's also an issue which is um, if our most primal emotion is fear, yep. then fear of death is the most primal of our primal yep. emotions. So it's a deeply emotional subject. And so as I've gone through various state parliaments and spoken to hundreds of politicians, I've seen very intelligent people engage not very intelligently with the subject, and I think that is partly because there's a deep emotional overlay to it. And I think um, the normal judgment they would bring to bear on other legislation, uh, and then you throw into that a very skillful uh, and concerted disinformation campaign, particularly from the Catholic Church and their representatives in the medical profession. So um, what seemed like a no-brainer, yes. and, and you're right, even more than same-sex marriage, the public support for uh, some form of law which would help people when they die and give them a choice was off the charts and always has been. Um, so people would say, well, it's a no-brainer, isn't yeah. it? But there was this incredible soup of, of fear and disinformation. Um, and uh, um, I think politicians were terrified of getting it wrong yeah. somehow. What if somebody we bring in this law and somebody dies that shouldn't die, which was kind of stepping past the fact that there were, uh, and eventually this came out in various parliamentary inquiries, there were people taking their own lives who were terminally ill every week all around the country. Uh, and, you know, yeah. that's that was a real quantifiable problem rather than a hypothetical one that uh, somebody might die using this law who shouldn't. It's a really, I mean, the, the, the sense of time, it's, you know, we all are aware the world existed before we did, mm -hmm. but we think we find it very difficult to imagine the world existing after us. Or maybe I say, maybe when I say we, maybe I mean I. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I find that hard to imagine. Um, 
Look, it is. You know, I remember the first day I, I, I suddenly it occurred to me, oh, I'm not going to be alive in that year. Yeah. You know, I can't remember what year it was, but uh, but it was like, oh no, I really won't be alive in that year. And that's that's a bit of a, a stunning thought. Look, we're all. What was it? Uh, Kierkegaard said that great thing about uh, life can only be experienced forwards and understood backwards. We're, we're all so limited by um, our own little personal filter bubble. Yes, um, and that's why uh, visionary people. We, uh, we extol visionary people because those who have the capacity to think forward, you know, there's a man called Stuart Brand who has the clock of the long now, which is, uh, and he asks people to think forward, not just 10 years or 100 years, but 1,000 years. Um, and uh, there's a number of people sign up to that. Uh, uh, I became friendly with a former Australian Federal Police Commissioner, Mick Kelty, and that was that was a required reading for him. I don't know how it informed his work. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if there's been any thousand-year sentences handed out, for instance. Yeah. Oh, there may have been. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> there sure have been. Think, always, but I do always think that's strange when someone gets, you know, concurrent 150-year sentences. Yeah, that is a bit weird. Yeah. But I guess it's uh, bureaucracy. Yes. Um what do you mean exactly when we talk about voluntary assisted dying? Because I think even the definition of it is yeah. something that, that people might struggle with. Look, it's it's not a great expression. It's clunky, but yeah. uh, but it's accurate. Yes, it's. Let's take the words in reverse. Dying, yeah. you're dying, yeah. and you want a choice about how that's going to be. Uh, voluntary assisted dying is not a choice to die. Yes. It's a choice about how you die. Assisted. Means that uh, now through law, yep. um, through assessment by uh, two or more doctors independent of each other who confirm that you are dying, dying and you are suffering and you have, it varies between six and 12 months to live, right. um, then they will assist you by giving you a prescription for a lethal medication right. that you can choose to take or not. Yep. And I'll come back to that choose in a second. And voluntary yep. is that it's entirely your choice. Um, and so part of, you know, one of the arguments against this, well, how do we know it's somebody's choice? You know, Douglas might be, his kids might want him to go. Um, uh, part of the assessment process is for, that, that this is yep. your choice. And you don't just have to prove that once. Right. You have to prove your competency yep. and your voluntariness multiple times throughout this process. It's not an easy process. So to go back to that, the idea of it being, um, uh, your choice. Yep. Interestingly, the law has been going now for nearly three years in Victoria, a little over a year in Western Australia, and this is reflected overseas too. A third of the people that legally get that medication, so have the choice, don't take it. Okay. Uh, some because they, they die before they can, but many because, you know what, this has given me control. Yes. And one of the things about end of life for those who are really suffering yeah. is that terrible fear and a justifiable fear that they will end up uh, a shell of themselves, no dignity, no control, the suffering it causes them, the suffering it causes them by seeing the suffering it causes those they love. Um, that's – and, you know, uh, I would hear people who oppose this law sort of scoff at this idea of, well, it's about autonomy and people just want control. And I think, yes, and? Yeah. What is your point? Like who don't we all we we have spent all our lives controlling or trying to control our actions and our outcomes? Why would our deaths be any different? Which is that 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 choice? But is that 
you talk a lot about the the suffering for others. So we hear when someone dies, what's well, a relief, not just yes for the person, but for the the surround. And it's almost not sad when someone's in so much pain. So you're it's complicated. Yeah, it's very, very complicated. Very very difficult. Uh, I was speaking with uh, two doctors in Western Australia who uh, have been assisting people to die, and 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 I know this from feedback I've had. Uh, families, you know, grief is grief is grief. Yeah. Uh, what was it? Tolstoy said, "Every happy family is happy in the same way. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way." Families are complicated, and 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 voluntary assisted dying, while merciful, it's not a silver bullet. Somebody's still dying, and there's still the politics of families involved. So um, there are there's the huge a huge range of reactions from, and this is the I'm pleased to say the the most common reaction, which is. Of course, sadness that the person's died, but great gratitude that their death was something controlled and beautiful and there was farewells. But but for others, you know, I know one family and uh, the, the wife is a doctor and they supported the, uh, her husband's choice. But when they were there, when he took the medication and died and, and afterwards, they felt like they'd witnessed a murder. So it, It's very, it, very different. It is, and it always will be. There's yeah. no clean... There's, there's no one size fits all for death. So we have these, uh, you know, you're dealing with taboos, you're dealing with death, you're dealing with religion, politics. Um, one of the other taboo subjects is money. Mm -hmm. And um, you have the advantage that you've asked lots of people lots of questions over time, but mm. how do you feel asking people for money? Because as a campaigner, you need, you need to raise funds. How'd... Good question. Uh, well, look, you said, you want to learn, so I'll share yeah. with you this one of the smartest things I've ever done, and yeah. I didn't know it was smart except in retrospect. So um, I became friendly with a, a, a senior and well-known uh, banking figure in Sydney, and um, and there must have been something in a conversation we'd had prior to me embarking on this course which made me a little light go into my head and think, I'll talk to him yep. about this. And the intuition I had um, turned out to be exactly right. If I'd been younger, I would have gone and asked him for money, but I didn't. I went and said, I need to raise money. Can you advise me how to do that? And to this day, he's never given me a cent, but he connected me, opened doors, gave me his boardroom, um, hosted lunches, pulled together people who I wouldn't have known. And that's what opened the doors to everything. But to, to your question, I never have a problem asking people for money because I'm going to put a perfectly good argument as to why they should give me money. And they have every right to say this is not my thing or not my priority. And it was actually very interesting because we had numerous lunches with uh, some very significant uh, business and other figures um, sitting around a table. And the conversation would turn, it was an open conversation to death and dying. And some people uh, who I'm quite sure were not used to emoting in this yeah. company became very emotional. Um, they weren't always the ones that uh, supported. Others just thought it through. Others uh, liked uh, the case I was putting. Others felt it was important. But I, I don't ever have a problem asking. Um, because if you don't ask, you never know. Yeah. 
And, you know, uh, I'm hoping there'll be people listening to this who w- would like to support the work of Go Gentle going forward, but I'm, we can get to that. And what, what what does Go Gentle need to do now? So you've got, you know, voluntary assisted dying exists in most of the states, all, well, all, the, the, states, all the states, but, but neither of the territories. Yeah, so, so, so where are you up to? What's Well, there's still that, that legislative, that last bit of legislative work to do for the territories to be able to pass these laws. A law that was passed in our federal parliament has to be repealed, yes. and that law was passed back in uh, 1997. And it, because some people may remember that the first place in the world ever to pass a euthanasia law was the Northern Territory, and four people used it. And then the federal government, under John Howard, but absolutely with the support of then opposition leader Kim Beasley, uh, they used uh, a, a part of our constitution to override that law. And they didn't just stop that law, they actually removed the right of our territories to ever debate it. That that one topic. That one law. Right. So they 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 can't even as even though between the ACT and the Northern Territory, it's about seven hundred thousand people. Tasmania has four hundred thousand people and they have this law. So anyway, it's it's when I tell people it's like what? You're not even allowed to talk about it? And nope. So anyway, that law has to be overturned first. Then the territories, parliaments can decide for themselves if this is what they want to do. So what remains to be done? I did think passing the law, that's job done. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well and and I suspect that the people that have backed us financially uh may think that too. But what I've come to realize is a couple of things. One, through the course of this journey and, and looking and and speaking to a lot of medical professionals, looking at the medical professions, um, there is still a strong streak of doctor knows best. Yeah. Uh, even within the medical profession, there is a lot of talk about what's called futile care. And we probably all know somebody, you know, the, the 92-year-old grandmother who was given hip replacement uh when they were, you know, on their last legs. And there was a survey done of doctors in Queensland a few years back. I haven't got the exact figures to hand, but the gist of it was something like 80% of them uh, admitted to having given what you would call futile care because it was easier to do that than to have the hard conversation. The hard conversation being, you're dying. Yes. And do now let's talk about how do you want uh, the path towards the end of your life to be. Um, so there's that. Uh, there's, uh, not surprisingly, there's still a lot of, you know, voluntary assisted dying is in many ways a revolution in Australian medicine because most of our peak medical bodies were opposed for a long time. There are many doctors that are still opposed. They have a right to that conscientious objection. Often it is faith-based, but not always. Uh, but there's a whole lot of other doctors who haven't, really thought about the kind of care that people require and which they could offer at the end of life. So I was uh, speaking to an emergency doctor in Western Australia the other day who was not necessarily politically, he wasn't a doctor that agitated for this law reform, but he decided to train for it. And he said, it's turned out to be the most satisfying medical work I've done. And I said, why, why is that? He said, because so much of what I do, it's a fairly quick consult, it's quick diagnosis, whereas this, it's actually going to people's homes and sitting with them and getting to assess not just their condition but their lives, and uh, it's it's intimate. And uh, so plus there, there are the same forces that oppose this law have made it very clear 
really emboldened by the Roe versus Wade decision in the States that they will not rest till these laws are repealed. And um, uh, I don't underestimate the capacity of them to uh, work away at that. And there's plenty of politicians that would side with them on that. So the laws need to be defended. There are limitations in the laws. Um, I'll give you a very uh, simple example in Victoria, which was the first state to pass the law. It is illegal for a doctor to raise this as, as an option for a patient. You, the patient, have to use the words. And of course, for some, for many people, they don't understand this. If English is not your first language, uh, if your education levels are low, so it's it's a it's the only prohibition of its kind in medicine. Uh, you know, it's, imagine <laughs> if you were a, a you know a, an obstetrician and and you you couldn't mention um, having an epidural. Yeah. <laughs> be kind of mad. But now, now that everyone uses Doctor Google, maybe. <laughs> well, that's right. So so there's things that need to be improved. <laughs> yeah. But look, it's really that the. The phrase I like to use, um, Nelson Mandela used that beautiful expression, walking each other home. And I think we we can walk each other home at the end of life uh, better. And in that I include palliative care, which is not a, a as well-known a branch of medicine as it should be, it's, and it's unique in medicine in that it's not curative. Palliative care is designed to help you in many ways, uh, physically, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, um, at the end of your life. It helps you to live as well as you can while you're dying. And it, and it could be over two, three years palliative care, longer. Um, unfortunately, for a lot to do with faith, palliative care and assisted dying have been enemies. <laughs> we, we found ourselves in conflict, not universally, but largely. Whereas, to my thinking, and uh, there is total crossover, uh, voluntary assisted dying and palliative care have exactly the same aims, which is we're all going to die. Uh, for some people, it's going to be a very hard path. This could help. Uh, and, and in fact, we know from Victoria now that most people that choose assisted dying also are in palliative care. So there's a lot of work to be done to try and... Um, bring these two ways of thinking together. And and in my journey, I met a beautiful palliative care physician in Belgium who used to run their palliative care. And he talked about how palliative care is not, he said, he had wonderful expressions. He said, there's this sacral duty. Sometimes I will sleep by the bed of my patient all night. It's not normal medicine. And he said, um, but then I said, why do you think palliative care as they mostly do around the world, oppose this. And he said, I don't understand. You know, how can you say to somebody who is suffering, uh, keep suffering, tomorrow it will be, it will be better? Um, and he, he used a, a lovely expression. He said, I think it is over pride from doctors. And I think there is some of that, which is, as I said, it's doctor knows best. So yes. there's a lot to be done. You know, I kind of think of it as, um, doctors have, their own peak bodies and yes. you know their most powerful trade union is the AMA for example whereas the, the people who are dying have no they don't have a union to speak for them and so I see that as go gentles role in concept with there are other groups dying with dignity groups but um, we're a national group and um, I think we've been effective to this point but for our work to continue nationally because uh, the dying with dignity groups are all running on the smell of an oily rag we still require uh, philanthropic support, so that's the challenge. I look at I look at the um, let's say the impact 
this must have on you. You, you, you mentioned it's draining, it can be all consuming. You know, I, a very, very simple timeline of your journey is comedian, interviewer, campaigner. Mm -hmm. You left out sex symbol. Sorry. Yeah. That <laughs> I was, was going to come to that. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> that, was a, that was a finale. <laughs> I'm coming to that. That's yes. the last question. Yeah. What is it like to be a sex symbol? <laughs> well, you can do that one now. Yeah, I, actually, I used to describe myself as Australia's leading celibate symbol. <laughs> <laughs> you were described as the world's funniest pessimist, which is uh, which is one thing. But um, That's not bad. I'm interested in the, the – there's two elements of your journey that, that, that sort of fascinate me. One is this, this idea it appears to be getting darker over time, yet you laugh a lot, I guess, but but it does appear to be a, a sort of darkening journey. How, how, how does it, I mean, it must take a toll on you. That's an interesting perspective. Um, first of all, uh, I'd just say, compared to the world, my life is shining. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I, I've certainly found it uh, stressful and emotionally sometimes really uh, draining. And all the people I've worked with and myself at different times have had to go and uh, decompress and, and get counselling support. But by and large, I would say um, far in excess of any media work I did, this has been the most rewarding yeah. and in many ways positive thing I've ever done because yeah. I know for a fact and I've got some of the most beautiful letters and yeah. uh, sometimes conversations with people, I know for a fact that the work I've been engaged in not just me, but the yeah, people yeah. I've worked with, has made a, a fundamental difference uh, to what could have been a, a hugely traumatic and damaging thing, and damaging yeah. for generations, not just to the person and the immediate family. Yeah. yeah. So I feel very, very privileged. Um, if you think of it as a third act, the way yeah. you've described yeah. it, and I, that was a pretty good summary, then wow, what a third act. Yes. Way more important to me than the previous two acts and way more beneficial to me. So I yes. don't see it yeah. as dark. Yeah. Although occasionally <laughs> people, it is tricky now because friends and particularly old media friends and sometimes old comedy friends say, oh, what are you up to? I said, I'm still in the death business. <laughs> and it's a, it's a bit of a conversation stopper. Yeah. So, so I mean, one of the things I'm interested in, the, the, the sort of cost, because this is an investing uh, podcast, the cost-benefit analysis of uh, of being famous. So you, hmm. in, in one way, I looked at you sort of generally. I think you've been quoted as being an introvert trapped in an extrovert's job or something. Absolutely, I'm, yeah. I'm the opposite. I'm an extrovert in an introvert's job, so I find that hard. But <laughs> but you've got this sort of. So um, this explains why you're doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but but what 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 I sort of observed and, and through various people talking about you didn't really like the spotlight. No. And yet perhaps the cost benefit analysis is the spotlight has helped when it comes to raising the profile of, of, of the cause of, of Go Gentle. Have you kind of oh, without, thought about yeah. Absolutely yeah. without yeah. question. In fact, I was talking to our new CEO yesterday and, and she said we're gonna fix up our homepage and yeah. and uh um re express our mission. Yes. And we want to put a picture of you on the homepage okay. and I said, Why? And she said, because you're still the strongest yeah. brand we have. And I said, that's reasonable. Um, absolutely. And look, fame, uh, I've been famous. Yeah. I know what it is to be famous. Uh, there are benefits from fame. The main benefits from fame are who you get to know. Yes. But in, t in the political and advocacy work I've been doing, yeah. uh, it's enabled me to get the meeting, yeah. walk through the door, yeah 
get the phone call answered. Not always. I mean, uh, as I've got less famous and yeah. as people have got more used to what I have to say, yeah. uh, it, when I first started out, I managed to meet with pretty much every politician in the parliament. Yeah. By the time we got to New South Wales, it was hard to get anyone to say hello. <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yes, there is a genuine benefit to it. But I'm, as anyone who knows me will tell you, I'm really, really happy to um, to disappear and not be that person. Yeah. So the other way I looked at the sort of journey, the comedian, the inter interviewer, the campaigner was effectively a thread of research and a thread of almost like like we are being being an analyst. Mm -hmm. um, and that to me, I thought was was interesting. I, I came very close to buying your yellow house in 2014. Ah, uh, my wife and I were looking for a place. We we came and looked at the, at the house. We actually I think we went back two or three times. Right. I feel like a voyeur now. It was weird because- <laughs> Yeah, it was weird because we were in it at the time. I remember thinking, who are these people? Why are they <laughs> why walking are they around? Well, why is the Scottish guy? <laughs> yes, keep right. No, we came, in, we came and looked and, and I remember uh, there was more than one, there was more than one sort of quirky place where it could look like you could just sit yeah. and work. Yeah. I was almost wondering, you know, maybe you invented work from home before before COVID. <laughs> but 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 to me, that thread through your life has been a, an mm. intense thread of research analysis. Yeah. Is that a fair? Yeah, that's a good observation. And um, I think one of the things that drives me through life is a, a ridiculous quest to understand and have everything organized, as in everything. Um, so I'm endlessly curious and yeah. I don't work in the traditional way that people understand and uh, sometimes that is puzzling to people yep. what are you doing i'm so busy yeah. i'm never bored there's so much to do and research i'm endlessly fascinated by how things go together how things work i was speaking to somebody who does um what you do which is analyze markets and and does research recently and i was just fascinated to understand the complexities of it as you as you're trying to place bets on a roulette wheel it's never stopped spinning yeah yeah i mean that's the thing it's it's there's a the price is moving as well so you can yes. do the analysis there's, yes. there's business analysis and then there's market yes. analysis which is a which i guess is another another dimension that's right and then you have that daniel kahneman thing of uh we think that we're making logical um decisions and we're making emotional ones yes so i used to do a lot of presentations on investing and i i attended a presentation you did to a collection of financial advisors. And I think that was again around sort of 14, 15. You, you talked a lot about your interviews with, with a number of people. And the one that stuck in my mind was Bill Clinton. Uh -huh. And in your interview with Bill Clinton, you talked about how you deliberately avoided Monica Lewinsky, which yes. everybody else was absolutely focused on. Yes. And that resonated with me because when we go and meet with companies, we want to ask different questions. Yes. And so for years, I used to have this slide in my PowerPoint deck of, of you. Uh -huh. um, interviewing Bill Clinton. And I used to use the analogy that a good meeting with a company for us as, in a sort of research context was very similar to a, an interview you would do right. with a, a person where you unpicked them in an unusual way. And that's what made it compelling viewing. So when I sat with my founder and he would interview a, a CEO, it was like watching a, a great talk show. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And to put it in strictly business terms, why did I do that with Bill Clinton? Because I wanted an outcome. Yes. Um, you want your you want that company to listen to your advice and your questions and go, I like, yeah, they're the ones I want to go with. Yes. You're seeking I the outcome I was seeking was uh 
an interview that was memorable yes. uh, from a guy that had spoken to everyone and was over it. Yeah. Um, so I, I've always said this to people that have asked me about interviewing. If you want someone to be interesting, make them interested. Yeah, in themselves. Uh, or interested or in, in the question. Ask them yeah. something that's yeah. that's a lot of what, you know, going back to research, uh, I and we, because I work with a team, did with enough yes. rope, which is we'd think – what is what's going to make this person interested in the question? Okay. We don't want to ask the stuff they've been asked four hundred times on the the rubber chicken circuit of interviewing, um, and it didn't always work, but it generally does work. You do want to be, you know, you've asked me some questions today which are fresh to me, and so interesting. Thank you. Um, well, well, one of the things that, that that was funny when when I asked if you you would, you would join the show was. Um, the guests generally fill in a, a template, and, yes. and, and you said no. It's an interview, and uh, and I came to understand that an interview is actually about the work you do beforehand. Yes, um, I learned that you told your staff not to use Wikipedia. Yes, which I would I would not say that now. Okay, that was so. That was back in the early two thousands. Yeah, uh, I think if I was reading about it the other day, Wikipedia is now uh, probably exceeded the Encyclopedia Britannica as a. a a source. It's it's proven itself, I believe. But at the time, I felt it wasn't, and and maybe I was wrong then. Yeah. Uh, I felt it wasn't as reliable a source as it needed to be. That's interesting because it. Uh, I started off typing Andrew Dent in Wikipedia into Google. <laughs> 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 I'm sure everything would have been there had I had I. Well, had I you know, I I certainly use Wikipedia yeah. uh, as a as a quick reference point, um, but it's not where I go to for. But you know, there's so many sources usually down, and links down the bottom of a good Wikipedia entry that there's lots of places you can go. I banned myself for the last two weeks, so <laughs> I'll, I'll go back to office. And by the way, the reason I said no to those questions you sent me is I definitely felt it it would stifle a conversation. I didn't want to be, as it were, having rehearsed some answers yes. to questions that, and you'd seen those answers yes. already. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. It was, uh, it was a very enjoyable experience for me sort of preparing for today. And I guess my, my final question is almost like the one that got away. I mean, you've, you've sat in front of a huge long list of people. Yeah. You have the ability today to still probably command an interview should you want one from someone. So who's who's someone who's you know passed away in the last you know 15 years who you, you wish you'd had the opportunity to, to sit down with? Well, uh, the person who I always wanted to get but never could and was never likely to is Rupert Murdoch, um, the most powerful non-elected person on the planet probably. But the person who I actually declined the opportunity to interview was in the very first, quite early in Enough Rope, and that was a, it was a show in a studio and the only way we could interview him was in a hotel room, which as you know from the Bill Clinton thing, eventually we did. But in those first few months, I was adamant. I said, no, we've got to keep it in the studio, and which was probably the right call. But yes. I deeply regret it personally and professionally, and even more so having just watched the documentary Moon Age Daydream, and that was David Bowie, uh, just a fascinating and brilliantly articulate man. And um, one of my producer who brought Bowie to the table, who's a very good friend of mine, um, she rolls her eyes whenever I say to her, you cost me David Bowie, because of course <laughs> yeah. it was all my fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like a, a, good, a, good place to, a good place to finish. I mean, um, a small regret in that situation, but 
no regrets with the the hard work you've been doing for Go Gentle, and, and I want to wish you all the best for for the future there and, and the battles you still have to fight. Thanks, Thank Douglas. you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Investing for Life podcast. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. For show notes from today's conversation, head to platinum.com.au.